Good morning, everyone. Good morning, church. It truly is a good morning. As we celebrate our God, worship our King, and have our inaugural service here in our new building, our new home, our permanent home. And what a momentous occasion this is in the history of Living Way. I thought a lot about our church this week um, and the journey that the Lord has taken us on. How in January of 2000, a few of us got together um, in my parents' living room and at that time, we didn't have a name, we had no money, we didn't have a building. All we had was a ragtag band of mostly high school and college kids that loved God and loved each other and wanted to make a difference in the world for Christ. And 23 years later, a lot has changed. We have a name. We got some money left over. <laughs> and now we have a building, a building that's going to house a ragtag band of People who are no longer in high school and no longer in college, mostly, but people who love God and love each other and want to make a difference in the world for Christ. God is so good, amen. Our God is so good. He is so faithful. And today we worship him for who he is and all that he has done. All right, with that, let's dive in. And before we go to God's word, we are going to over our values and if you are joining us for, for the first time this is something that we do on a weekly basis to remind ourselves of what really matters a lot of things matter in life but here are the things that matter most to us as a local body of believers and I'm going to say the value and if we can read the statement together in one voice a gospel-centered life the gospel is the basis of our intimacy with God and our power of true transformation a gospel-revealing community by a love that transcends all natural bonds. All people will know that we are Christ's disciples. Unapologetic proclamation of Scripture. We stand on the solid rock of Scripture without compromise for all the ground, sinking sand. Church as family. We as followers of Jesus pursue his vision of family through our deep and mutual commitment interdependence and affection and a missional community we join god's mission to make disciples by demonstrating tangibly the power of the gospel in our city and in the world as i sought the lord about what i might say to you this morning in our inaugural service i felt the lord leading me to the 16th chapter of the book of matthew so if you have your bibles if you will turn with me there, Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. And if you are able, will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? <clears throat> Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Grass withers the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. God, my cup overflows. God, our cup overflows with profound gratitude to you God for who you are and what you have done God this is a testament to your grace in our lives and God I thank you for this time God thank you for this building Thank you, God, for the people. Thank you, God, for every man, woman, and child here in this room, on this property. Thank you, God, for all that you have done. And God, I thank you most of all for your son. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, for the love that you have demonstrated in the giving of your son. That because of his life and death and resurrection, God, we live. And we will live forever with you. So God, at this time, we invite you now. Holy Spirit, come and have your way in our midst. Spirit, I pray that you would open every eye. Spirit, I pray that you would open every ear. That having seen and heard, we might be changed, both now and forever. So King Jesus, come and reign, reign over this church, reign over every heart, for the sake of your glory in the church, and all of God's people said, amen, amen. <clears throat> Our story this morning takes place in a city called Caesarea Philippi. Now Jesus at this point has become wildly popular. He's been performing miracles, he's feeding the hungry, he's healing the sick, casting out demons. He's teaching about the kingdom of God in ways the people have never heard. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. And that's when he takes his disciples on a little field trip to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now let me tell you a little bit about Caesarea Philippi. It's on the northernmost border between Israel and pagan territory. 
And the city itself was pagan to the core. Now, the word pagan at the time was not a derogatory term. It's just what they called the mishmash of religion and spirituality that was characteristic of the Greco-Roman world. Now, the city was originally called Panaeus, named after the Greek god Pan. And here's a picture of Pan, if we can put that up. How many of you guys have seen this before? He's a fawn, half goat, half man. And he was the god of the wild, the god of nature. And he was famous for his sexuality. In fact, promiscuous girls in the first century were called pan girls. So Panaeus was a place of excessive immorality. The level of sexual expression and exploitation was unlike anything in our world today. And every year, they had the Festival of Pan where over 250,000 people from all over the Greco-Roman world would flock to Panaeus to the Temple of Pan to engage in gross, unspeakable acts of immorality that I can't even talk about here. Now here's a little trivia. What fictional character gets its name from Pan? Anybody want to guess? Peter Pan. The childhood figure that we all grew up watching was named after the pagan god Pan. Isn't that wonderful? And you can see the connection, right? Peter Pan is a, is a, is a free-spirited, mischievous boy who never what? Who never grows up. He's in perpetual adolescence. And he was sort of a symbol of our pre-Christian past, where we fully embrace our animal nature, the wild side of life, the wild side of humanity. Now, here's the last thing I'll mention about Pan. He was the only god in Greek mythology to ever die. Pan dies. And he dies during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, who was Caesar when who was born? Jesus. So Pan dies right before Jesus enters the world. Isn't that interesting? But Panaeus is renamed Caesarea Philippi when Caesar Augustus gives the city to Herod the Great, who then gives the city to his son Philip for his 16th birthday, which is not a bad gift if you ask me. Hey, what you get for your birthday? A city. Nothing screams privilege like getting a city for your birthday. But Philip renames the city after Caesar and himself, hence the name Caesarea Philippi. And this is where Jesus takes his disciples. The Las Vegas of its day, the hotbed of paganism and false religion. And he doesn't preach a sermon there. No, he asks a question. The most critical of all questions who do people say that I am? Who do they say the Son of Man is? And this was Jesus' favorite designation of himself, right? The Son of Man, which was a title of the Messiah that emphasized his humanness. But Jesus asked the disciples, what are you guys hearing about me? Because remember, everyone is talking about him at this point, and he wasn't asking this because he didn't know. No, he knew what the people were saying. But he also knew that the very people that were talking about him didn't believe in him. And so he asked, 
who do people say that I am? And the disciples answer him, some say you're John the Baptist. Now John by this point is dead. He was beheaded by Herod two chapters ago, but somehow Jesus was John reincarnated, brought back to life. Others say you're Elijah, who was considered the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, who God would send to usher in the age to come. Some say you're Elijah. And others say you're Jeremiah, another highly regarded prophet of the Old Testament who was known as a prophet of lament and judgment. And others say you're one of the prophets. Now, don't ask me which one. I don't know. But all I know is he's got to be one of them to be doing all the stuff that he's been doing. So there was no shortage of opinions about who Jesus was. And notice that people as a whole thought highly of him. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah were all highly revered men. And that's who they associated Jesus with. He was in their tier, their category, but despite esteeming him highly, they all came up short in seeing who he truly was. I can't help but see the similarity with people today. Truth is, not much has changed in these 2,000 years. If we were to go across the street to Victory Park and randomly ask people, who do you think Jesus is? By and large, we're going to get positive answers. Now, of course, we're going to get some people who don't think well of him at all. But for the most part, we're going to get positive answers. Why? Because most people today see him in a positive light. In fact, According to a 2022 study by Ipsos, which is a major research firm, 84% of Americans believe Jesus is an important spiritual figure and want their children to grow up in a world where everyone is treated with the love and the equality that he champions. 84%. So the vast majority of Americans today see Jesus as an important religious figure who taught some important things about God and what it loves to what it looks like to love our fellow man. Now, the same study found that among those who identify as Christians, and this is where it gets interesting, but among those who claim to have a relationship with Christ, 50% said that he was the Son of God. 21% said he was the Messiah. 20% said he was Lord. 17% said he was a healer. 12% said he was a friend, 5% said he was a lover, and 3% said he was a brother. So even among those who claim to follow Christ, Jesus is a host of things to them. Everything from a friend to a lover to a healer, with only half saying that he was a son of God and only one out of five saying he is Lord. All that to say that people today are not all that dissimilar to the people in the first century. In other words, Jesus is a whole lot of things to a whole lot of people. And here's where the danger lies. Each of these opinions contains some truth, do they not? Every one of these opinions contains some truth. Jesus is 
a friend. He is. He is our brother. He is a friend. He is our healer. And even going back to the first century when Jesus first asked the question, he is like John the Baptist in calling people to repentance. He is like Elijah in working miracles. He is like Jeremiah in telling people of the coming judgment. But the danger comes when we take some truth of Christ and make it the whole truth, which is what the people did then and what people do now. We take one truth or one aspect of Jesus and we make it the whole truth about Jesus. And it's usually the parts that we like or agree with, right? The parts of him that resonate with us. The parts that fit our worldview. So God is love. Jesus loves sinners and that he did. So the Jesus I follow loves everyone and everything. And he doesn't really care what people do and how they choose to live their lives. And all that stuff about holiness and righteous living, don't really care about that. The Jesus I follow is a lover and that's how I'm going to be. Now on the other end, Jesus told a future judgment. That judgment awaits those who live unrepentantly in sin. And so the Jesus I follow hates sinners. He can't stand them. And all the stuff that they do in their rebellion, and all that the Bible says about mercy triumphing over judgment, loving our enemies, Loving those who are lost in their sin as we ourselves were, lo were loved when we were lost in ours. I don't care about any of that. The Jesus I follow is hellfire and brimstone, and that's how I'm going to be. You see, the problem comes when we take some truth and make it the whole truth. We take one aspect of Jesus and we make it the whole Jesus. And when we do that, we not only get Jesus wrong we relate to him wrong we relate to him wrongly and we live our lives wrongly which has serious major consequences now in a sea of opinions about who he is Jesus makes it personal he asks the disciples in verse 15 but who do you say that I am the general question about the people turns into a Direct question to the disciples, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And the you here in the Greek is emphatic. Who do you say that I am? And this is the question that has rung all throughout human history. And it's not just meant for the disciples. It's meant for us today. And I would add that this is the most important question you will answer in your life. There is no more important question than this. And it doesn't come from me as a preacher. It comes from Jesus himself. Who do you say that I am? You see, the issue today is not do you believe in Jesus, but who exactly is the Jesus that you believe in? This is the crux of the question. Because 8 out of 10, listen to this, 8 out of 10 people in America today say they believe in Jesus. And a whopping 9 out of 10, this blew my mind, 9 out of 10 
in America today believe that he actually rose from the dead. So the issue is not, the question is not, do you believe in Jesus? But who is the Jesus you believe in? And here's why this matters. Because who you see Jesus is will determine everything about how you follow him. So if you think Jesus is a good teacher, guess what? You're going to follow him as such. Like you would a good teacher. And if you like what he says, I'll listen to it. If I don't, then I won't. If you think Jesus is a good example of how life is to be lived, you're just going to do your best to, to follow the example as best you can. If you think Jesus is a good friend, then you're going to follow him like you would a good friend. Someone I chill and hang out with and whose counsel and advice I may or may not take. But if you think, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the, the promised Messiah who came to earth to save us from our sins, to conquer sin and death, and to, who rose to rule and reign over all, if that's who Jesus is to you, then that changes everything about how you live. Who we see Jesus is will determine everything about how we follow him. So I ask it again, who do you say he is? Now in response to Jesus' question, good old Peter speaks up. And if you know anything about Peter, you know that Peter is the disciple who had the spiritual gift of putting his foot in his mouth. He's the guy, he's the disciple who had nothing to say, yet said. Peter didn't really have a filter between what went through his head and what came out of his mouth. But here he gets it right. He aces it. He says, you are the Christ. Now, as most of you know, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. He's not Mr. Christ. And if you don't get that, don't feel bad at all. But Christ is a title, and it literally means anointed one. Or in the Hebrew, Messiah, Meshiach, who is the promised one of the Old Testament who would come and make right all that sin had made wrong. But Peter, here goes Jesus, you're him. You're him. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're not just another prophet. You're not just another rabbi. You are the Messiah, the Christ. You're him. But you're not just the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And this is huge. This is huge. Keep in mind that Matthew was written on the other side of the resurrection. And you and I are in on the secret that Jesus is more than just a great man. But for Peter and the disciples, this is a watershed moment as they come to the realization that, no, Jesus, you are the very son of the living God. And notice Peter says, the living God. You're not just the son of God, you are the son of the living God. The literal translation in the Greek is the son of God of the living one. And Bible scholars say this is probably a dig at Pan, who died just a few years before. Unlike him, 
Jesus, you are the son of the God who is alive and well. And in verse 17, Jesus answered and blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So right after Peter makes this declaration about Jesus, Jesus makes a declaration about Peter. And it is that Peter cannot take credit for the confession that he just made. Jesus says, Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own. Your confession is not the result of your intellect or your wisdom or your understanding. No, my Father in heaven, Peter, has revealed this to you. And this is where we are reminded of the truth that the grace of God is the only way anyone can behold the glory of Christ. The grace of God is the only way anyone can behold the glory of Christ. You see, the reality of our depravity is that the truth of Christ cannot be known by flesh and blood. A true understanding of Christ comes only by divine revelation. And Jesus says this in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So Jesus makes it clear, you cannot come. You cannot see on your own. You can't. But God, who is rich in mercy, draws us to the Son. And he opens our eyes to see for who he is and to believe in him. And if you are a Christian today, if you confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, know just how blessed you are. Know that you are where you are only because the mercy of God has opened your eyes to Christ. The wonder Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. Blessed are you. You have been so blessed by God. And might I add, so have you. If you know Jesus as Messiah, if you know him to be the son of the living God, I say it again, know just how blessed you are. You are seriously among the most blessed people on the face of the earth. And some of us in this room need to be reminded of that. Because some of us are at a place where we are wondering if God really is good. Some of you are questioning if God really loves you. Does he really love me? Oh, saints, let this truth, let the reality of his mercy put those things to rest. The Bible says you were depraved, guilty, condemned, and sentenced to an eternity in hell. But God in his mercy opened your eyes to Christ, not because of anything you've done, but all because he has chosen to set his love and affection, his mercy on you. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And Pastor Ray has been reminding us of that at every chance he gets. But do you realize the magnitude of that statement? I really. That before God even created the world, he had in mind to save you. Do you know what that means? 
That means before he even created the universe, before he formed you and created you, he knew you and loved you. In fact, check this out. There has never been a time when God did not know you. And there has never been a time when he has not loved you. Let that sink in. For as long as God has been God, and it's a long time, he has known you and loved you and planned to redeem you and adopt you into his family. Oh, what humility. Oh, what gratitude this should produce in us. What joy this should compel in us. That God would love us like that. And to my non-Christian friends that are here today, I implore you, I implore you to see your need of his mercy. That our sins have separated us from God. And no amount of good works will bridge that chasm. But God, who was rich in mercy, sent his own son into the world to live the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And all who turn from their sin and put their trust in him will be forgiven of their sins. To know God and to enjoy God and to be with God forever. Oh, may God open your eyes today to see your need of his mercy. May God open your eyes today to see Christ for who he truly is. Now, after telling Peter that his confession was a result of God's grace, not human understanding, Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, this is one of the most hotly debated statements in all of scripture and the point of contention is what is the rock right what's the rock on which the church will be built now our catholic friends say the rock is peter jesus is announcing peter as the foundation of the church in other words the first pope so peter is the vicar of christ on earth and the church rests on the foundation of that office the papacy now, we Protestants, we evangelicals reject that notion because it contradicts what we find in other parts of the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul writes that Jesus is the foundation of the church. And in 1 Corinthians 10.3, Jesus is called the rock. Not to mention Ephesians 2.20, where Jesus is called the chief cornerstone. So based on that, we do not believe that Peter is the foundation of the church. Now, some in our camp, in our tribe, have gone to the other extreme where we have pushed out Peter completely. This has nothing to do with Peter, but I don't believe that's right either. And here's why I say that. When you and I hear the word Peter, what do we think of? We think of a person, right? Peter to us is a proper name. It's a name of a guy. We got some Peters in this room. But in Jesus' day, Peter was not a name. It became a name, but it wasn't a name. It was a noun. And you know what it meant? Rock. So Jesus here literally says, you are rock. And on this rock, same word, I will build my church. Which points to the fact that Jesus is acknowledging some kind of foundational role that Peter will have 
in the establishment and the building of the church. And this is what we see in the New Testament, do we not? Specifically in the book of Acts, for example, on the day of Pentecost. Who's the first one to stand up and preach the gospel to the masses after the Holy Spirit comes? It's Peter. He is the central figure in the building of the church in Acts chapters 1 through 12. Paul himself said in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So what then is a rock that the church will be built on? Is it Peter? Jesus? The apostles? The gospel? The answer is yes. Yes. I think about what we just read. By God's grace alone, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And right after, immediately after, Jesus makes this statement about the church that he's going to be building by his grace upon Peter and his confession of faith. So the point becomes clear. Jesus is saying to Peter in light of his confession, you are my authoritative apostle, sent out to proclaim my good news. And upon you and the proclamation of the gospel, I will build my church. So the rock of the church is the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ and the power of his spirit. The people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ in the power of the Spirit. And when that happens, the church is built by who? By Jesus. We can't miss this. By Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church. So not only is our confession of faith made possible by the grace of God, so is the building of the church. Men and women, it is by his grace and power. And that is good news for us. That is good news for us. And that's a timely word for us today as we have our inaugural service here in our new building. And I say that because we can think that it's up to us to build this thing. Now that we have a place of our own, we got to make this work, right? Now that we have a building of our own, man, we got we to build this thing. That's the temptation that lies before us. All the more when you consider that the fact that we have, we've created ways of doing church today that requires little to no help from God at all. You see, the danger of doing church nowadays is that you can build a church. You can build a church if you get certain things right. You get some dope musicians, and the place feels like a concert every Sunday. If you have a dynamic preacher who delivers powerful, uplifting, 25-minute sermons that have people walking out of church with a spring in their step. If you have an amazing creative team that, that's on the cutting edge of technology and the visuals are popping, Man, you bring all these things together and you can build a church. And it can appear as though God is at work. But hear this. The real church is nothing but the supernatural work of Christ. The real church is nothing but the supernatural work 
of Christ. Anything else is not a church. It may look like a church. It may say it's a church. It may sound like a church. But the real church is something that is built only by the supernatural work of Christ as his gospel is proclaimed. And this is good news for us. And this is good news for me. Because I'll be honest with you, I really don't know how to build a church. In real life, grace. I don't. I don't. And the longer I'm in this thing, the longer I'm in ministry, the more I realize, the more I realize just how much I lack as a leader. Just how limited I am. How inadequate I am as a pastor. Truth is, I'm a lot more messed up than I like to think I am. But I thank God that it's not up to me. It's not up to Pastor Ray or Newly or the Elder or anyone else. I'm thankful that the building of the church is not based on human wisdom or human ingenuity or our ability to get things done and make things happen. It's not built on hype or buzz or certain leadership qualities and personalities. No, it's built on the risen Christ and the foundation of his word. And that is why all the music, hear me, all the music and all the preaching and all that we have in the nice building, all of that in vain is in vain if Christ is not at the center of everything we do. You see, our aim as a church is not to come into this place and have a good feeling. That is not why we do what we do. Our aim as a church is to see Christ, to encounter Christ, to magnify Christ, to honor Christ, to proclaim Christ, to glorify Christ, and to have our lives changed as a result of that. Guys, here's the worst thing that can happen in the coming days. And it is for people to go out and tell others what great music we have. Or what dynamic preaching Living Way has. Hey, come check out the church. It's got great music, great, great preaching. Because here's the deal. If that's why people come, what happens when the music ain't all that great? What happens when the sermon is lackluster and fails to wow people? What happens then? Those people, those very people will then go to the next church that has great music and great preaching. And this is what we see taking place everywhere. We are playing musical chairs. But what happens when the draw of the church is not great music or great preaching, but a great God? What happens when Christ is a center of this church. That's when the word gets out. And I pray that that would be true of us. That a living way, Christ is being exalted. Christ is being magnified. Christ is being proclaimed. Christ is being glorified. 
And I pray that that would be what is testified and said about our church. And Christ is transforming hearts and minds, and He is building the church in ways that cannot be explained apart from His hands. Jesus said, I will build my church. Notice He doesn't say, I will build your church. He says, I'm going to build mine. And so the church isn't just built by Jesus, it belongs to Jesus. It's His. Which brings us to the truth that living way belongs to Christ. It really does. He's the head of this church. He's the chief shepherd. He's the chief cornerstone. Living way is his. And I'm thankful that our church has never been about one man. It hasn't. And this is part of the problem, right? This was part of the problem at the church in Corinth. You guys remember those guys? There were all these factions in the church based on their affinity, their loyalty to certain leaders. So they were saying, this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, some were saying, I follow Paul. Others said, I follow Apollos. Others said, I follow Cephas, that is Peter. And some said, I follow Christ. And that's what's so crazy about all this. Jesus was just one name among many that they were following. And what does Paul say in response? He says in verse 13, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course they weren't. Paul's point here is that the church is not about this guy or that guy. The church is about Jesus. Because the church belongs to Christ. Martin Luther said something similar when he heard that some of the first Protestants were they were calling themselves Lutherans after him. And this is what he said, what is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call, who are called by the children of God are called by my evil name? Praise God that Living Way Community Church has never been and never will be about one man. James Yam or Ray Cosley or Newly Kim or anyone else. Because nobody up in here has been baptized into any of us but Christ. Instead, Living Way has been about one message. And that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And as long as that is our message, as long as that is what we as a church are about, guys, we're given a promise. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, let me go back real quick to where Jesus was when he said the Caesarea Philippi. The city itself was built on a huge rock face. And the rock face had a cave, a very deep cave, a very ominous-looking cave. And guess what they called the cave? The gates of hell. That's what they called it, the gates of Hades, which is hell in Greek. So Jesus is most likely standing in front of the cave when he says, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, what is he saying here? What does he mean by that? He's saying all the powers of death and evil will not overcome this day. All the powers of death and evil will not, will not overcome the church. And this is not a suggestion. This is not wishful thinking. This is a promise. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. And the powers of hell will not overcome it. And this is a word that we need to hear today. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes for me, the powers of darkness, the power of sin, the power of Satan at times seems so powerful that, that nothing can stop it, that nothing can overtake it. But Jesus says, he promises that none of these things, none of these things will stop me from building my church. Why? Here's why. Because he knows that he's about to whoop the devil and make a spectacle of him through the cross. He knows that he's going to rise from the grave and conquer death. That's why death can't stop him. And not just him. Death will not stop his people, the church, from proclaiming the message of the cross. I love how J.C. Rowell put it. Listen to what he said. Nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The pharaohs, the herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down the church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. But the true church of Christ outlives them all and sees them buried each in its turn. The church is an anvil that has been broken many, or that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. The church is a bush which is often burning, yet it is never consumed. Amen and amen. That is a good word. And history has proven that Jesus has kept his promise. Check this out. Jesus started out with 12. By AD 30, you got around 1,000 Christians. Then by 100 AD, that number grew tenfold to 10,000 Christians. Then by 200 AD, the church had grown 20-fold, and you have 200,000 Christians. Then by 300 AD, you have over 5 million Christians. And this has puzzled historians and sociologists how this ragtag band of uneducated fishermen and tax collectors can grow into a movement of over 5 million people, especially in the Roman Empire that was tr literally trying to stamp them out. They were trying to kill them off as quickly as they were birthed. But the church kept growing. It kept spreading. And it continues to grow to this day. Now today you hear all kinds of reports about how the church is in decline, right? That's all we hear. 
The church is in decline. The church is in decline. And yes, in certain parts of the West, it is. But globally, all across the world, the church is growing. The church is spreading. The church is flourishing like never before. There are over 600 million followers of Christ in Latin America alone. There are almost twice as many Christians in Africa as there are people in America. The fastest growing in the church, you know where it is? The fastest growing church in the world is in Iran, where Christianity is illegal, where if you convert to Christianity, you can be killed. That's where the fastest growing church in the world is presently. And the church in China, despite the crackdown, the oppression from the government, the persecution, oh, the church in China is spreading like wildfire, and it cannot be stopped. The name of Jesus is being praised by 4,765 languages today. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And history is showing that he has kept his promise. In living way, he is he's going to keep his promise to us. He will keep his word with us. He will. He will be faithful. So let's stay faithful to him and to his call. Let's keep proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Knowing that when we do, heaven's got our back. And that's what Jesus means when he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. When we proclaim the gospel and the authority that Jesus gives us, which is what the keys of the kingdom are here in this text, Jesus says, all of heaven stands behind us. And living with that is true of us today. All of heaven stands behind us. Oh, think about that. All of heaven stands behind us. So church, be encouraged. Knowing that the same Lord who led us to this point will lead us from this point. Our God is a faithful God, amen? He is faithful. And he has proven that time and time again in the history of our church. It is not by accident. It is not by happenstance that God led us to this place in the 23rd year of our church. He's got a purpose and a plan for us here for such a time as this. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that our best days are before us, not behind us. I believe that with all my heart. Our best days, living way, are before us, not behind us. So in the grace that God gives, living way, let's be the city on a hill. Let's be that city on a hill and shine the light of Christ in darkness. And let's take back, let's take back what Satan has taken here in Pasadena and beyond to the nations. Knowing that heaven stands behind us. And that the gates of hell will not be able to stop us. Let's pray.
That's God. We thank you for your promise, Lord. And Jesus, we thank you that you are our chief shepherd. You are the chief cornerstone. You are the head of this church. And Lord, we thank you for the promise that you will build it. You will build this church. And the gates of hell, the powers of darkness, will not overcome it. God, we thank you for your promise. And we choose this day, God, to stand in that promise. Knowing, God, that you have led us here, to this place, to this community, to this city, to shine the light of Christ, that many in Pasadena would come to see a great light and come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And God, I pray for the people here in this room. And those who are watching, oh God, I pray that you would, in your mercy, God, would you open their eyes to see their need of you. Those that do not know you, as Savior, Lord, and Treasure, God, I beg you that you would open the eyes of their hearts that they would see Christ, that they would see the beauty of Christ, and that they would glory. God, would you give us that grace? God, give us the grace to have you be front and center of all that we do. That Jesus, that living way truly would not be about any person. It wouldn't be about the quality of our music or preaching or whatever. But God, that the word that gets out, the word that gets out about living way that we serve and we worship a great God. So God, let that be true of us. Let that be true of us. God, pour out your spirit. God, pour out your mercy. Pour out your grace upon us. And God, I commit, I dedicate this place, this body into your hands. King Jesus, rule and reign over us. And make us, God, into a church that brings glory and honor to your name here in Pasadena and to the nations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.